Psalm 127. Psalm 127 uh, should be projected on the wall behind me. There should also be a Bible close to you, uh, somewhere in the pew, if you didn't bring your own. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to take home that pew Bible as our gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word that you can read and study and refer to. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does it profit a man to gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? These are the opening words of the book of Ecclesiastes, a book that we studied not too long ago, and they they seem to communicate a way of looking at the world that is in conflict with the rest of Scripture. Most of the Bible uh, communicates to us a view of the world that says everything, literally everything, has meaning and purpose and significance, even if we don't see it. But Ecclesiastes has this constant refrain that everything is vain. Everything is meaningless. And this is intentional on the part of the preacher in Ecclesiastes because he wants to articulate a view of the world that is purely human and horizontal. And that is communicated by that little phrase, under the sun. And we see that phrase, under the sun, 27 times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And and basically it means without God. The preacher knew what it meant to live life without God. He attempted to make meaning of his life, to control and to cultivate his experience under the sun. And he did so with wealth and with possessions and with wisdom and especially with pleasure. He looked to alcohol and frivolity and hobbies and art and entertainment and sex and food and family and reputation. Did it work? No. In the end, it was all a lot of work and worry. And in his words, there was nothing to be gained. It was all in vain. His conclusion in the book is that without knowing and acknowledging and embracing the sovereign creator and Lord of all things, life with all its fleeting and finite realities, with all its seeming randomness and insignificance, with all of its brokenness and pain, together with its pleasures and its victories, life feels and looks and is meaningless. It is vain without God. But with the Lord, everything changes. Some of the last words in the book of Ecclesiastes are these. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Relationship with the Lord brings meaning and it brings mission to all of life and everything that we do. And that is the, the, the overall message of the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's the message of this psalm, Psalm 127. And that makes sense. Because they are attributed to the same person, 
the son of David, who served as king in Jerusalem, Solomon. There are only two psalms attributed to Solomon. He may have written more, but only two uh, bear his name, and this is one of them. So look with me at Psalm 127, and if you're able, please stand in honor of God's word. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's give thanks to the Lord for his word. Lord, we are so grateful that you speak to us that you have spoken to us ultimately in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, but also that you have given to us this book, this testimony to him as he reveals who you are. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we know that you have inspired this book, that you have preserved this book, and that you have appointed us to come to this passage of this book today, and you've done so for your glory and for our good. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would take the words that testify to our Savior. Open our eyes to see what you have to say, to our ears to hear what you have to say, our hearts to receive what you have to say, and our very lives to apply what you have to say, so that we might be transformed into the image of Christ, so that we might be sanctified. We love you, our Lord and our God, and we look to you because we need your grace as we approach your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Since I was 16 years old, I have mostly occupied the driver's seat of any car that I am in. But in the last few months, uh, my daughter Avery, who is 15, acquired her learner's permit. And so we are working on getting her 60 hours of driving that she needs in order to get her driver's license. I think of myself as a a pretty laid-back, relaxed, trusting person. But my time in the passenger seat with my daughter in the driver's seat has revealed in me a craving for control. Avery is doing really well. And she is being super responsible, but I'm still over here just anxious for the driver's seat. I want control. And that's hard for me to admit. But I think that's exactly what it looks like when we attempt life without the Lord. We try to control it. Attempts to control our lives reveal our belief that our lives are about us. That they are for us. And that they are up 
to us. And the psalmist teaches us that this leads inevitably to vanity and to anxiety instead of to meaning, peace, rest, and joy. What does it look like to live without the Lord? Solomon tells us living without the Lord looks like seizing control. Living without the Lord looks like seizing control. It means taking that human and horizontal perspective that life is about me, that life is for me, that life is up to me, so I need to work to control it. And this isn't something that, as human beings, we have to develop in ourselves. Psychologists tell us that the the need and desire for control is instinctual and universal among humans. And the Bible tells us that we've been trying to seize control from the very beginning. There was, in God's original perfect world, only one prohibition. God had given to the people that he made, Adam and Eve, everything for their enjoyment and for their good. He said, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. And into God's perfect world came one temptation. The devil, in the form of a serpent, came to the woman and said, you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, Satan's Uh, temptation to Adam and Eve was take control of your life and stop just taking God's word for it. Of course, there was one sin. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it and gave some to her husband who was with her and he also ate it. They seized control and tried to live without the Lord. And from that moment, their lives and all of creation became vain and anxious, a place full of sin and with human beings constantly trying to seize control. So Adam and Eve tried to, immediately after their sin, seize control of the situation by hiding from an all-knowing God. Their son, Cain, tries to seize control of his less than ideal situation by murdering his brother Abel. And it goes on and down from there. We get it, honestly. We naturally try to seize control in our lives, and we don't even have to be aware that we are doing it. And Solomon here highlights three areas where we try to seize control. The first is our work. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. I seize control of my work when I believe that it is for me and about me and up to me. One of the best biblical examples of this is just a few chapters after Adam and Eve decided to seize control. We call the story the Tower of Babel. People had migrated west and they, uh, they had found a settlement and they said, let us build a city and a tower with its uh, top in the heavens Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Without any acknowledgement of God. These people worked 
to build a city and a tower that would benefit and glorify them. It was about them and for them and up to them. And it was all in vain. The Lord condescends and looks at this tower that they are supposedly building up to the heavens. He, look at, he looks at their desire to seize control and make a name for themselves. And he confuses the languages of the people and disperses them throughout the earth. Who is your work about? Who is it for? Who is your work up to? Pastor Tim Keller tells us that if the point of work is to serve and exalt ourselves, then our work inevitably becomes less about the work and more about us. Our aggressiveness will eventually become abuse. Our drive will become burnout, and our self-sufficiency will become self-loathing. In the words of the psalmist, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. We seize control in our work. We also try to seize control in our world. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The purpose of the night watchman is to maintain security of the city. It's, uh, this is going to be a niche reference, but it's the, it's the guard in Disney's Robin Hood, the, the, the vulture who says, one o'clock and all's well. Meanwhile, Robin Hood and Little John are surreptitiously sneaking into the city to steal Prince John's gold and to free the prisoners. We too can try to seize control by our vigilance in seeking safety and security. Because of sin, the reality is the world is a dangerous place. But the truth is also that we cannot maintain safety and security no matter how hard we try to hold on. We don't know the future. We aren't promised the future, and we don't control the future or even the present. But we seize control when we act as if we do, as if it were up to us to secure and to change our world, to guard the city. And it's for that reason so many people, Christian and non-Christian, for them, politics and culture have become a massive idol and a kind of a, a war that must be won at all costs with two entrenched sides trying to to stay awake so that the other side doesn't have opportunity to seize control of the narrative or of the power or of the people. It's for them. It's about them. It's up to them to watch over the city. That's why so many people are addicted to their preferred narrative and their source of news, and they have allowed it to inform their identity. That's why so many people also live lives paralyzed by the fear of what might happen to them. And so they spend their whole lives calculating how they can seize control in their environments or in their relationships instead of receiving and enjoying what the Lord has provided as a blessing. All of this trying to control our work and our world is vain. We know that because we experience its vanity and we experience the anxiety that it produces. But even though we experience it, we still feed it and we still try to seize control through our worry. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest 
eating the bread and anxious for it. Therapist Amy Moore, and I, I don't know where she is with the Lord, but she says something very insightful. Worrying stems from a desire to be in control. We often want to control our environment, or we may want to control, we may want control over the outcome of every situation. But the more you try to control everything around you, the more anxious you will feel. It's a vicious cycle to break. Worry. Try to gain control. Fail and worry again. And that's what Solomon is talking about here. Worry that does not let us rest. We are up early, making things happen, keeping those plates spinning, ensuring our security. All the while, we are anxious and worrying about what if we slip? We're also up late at night doing the same, not even able to enjoy what the Lord has provided us. Instead, we are eating the bread of anxious toil. What does it look like to live without the Lord? It looks like seizing control of our work and our world with our worry, which is all in vain. And it robs our lives of meaning and purpose and peace and joy and significance. In Solomon's words from Ecclesiastes, it is a chasing after the wind. By our own attempts to control our lives, how many of us who know the Lord have been living as if we don't? By our attempts to control our lives, our, our work and our world, our environments and our relationships, with our worry, how many of us who know the Lord and God of all creation, who preserves and sustains and governs all his creatures and all their actions, how many of us who know the Lord are living as if we don't by trying to control everything? The good news is, in Psalm 127, Solomon offers an alternative. Not life without God, but life in relationship with the Lord. We see that in the last part of verse 2. He says, For he gives to his beloved sleep. This can also be translated, For he gives to his beloved in their sleep. Both communicate that those that the Lord loves, those who trust in him, can rest because of the Lord's care and provision for them. Think back over these last many weeks as we have been looking at the songs of ascent the, and the God that they reveal, the God that we have been reading about and learning about and singing about, the God who answers our call when we call to him in our distress, the God who is our constant and merciful helper, the God who is on our side, who has never let us down, who is always faithful. What does it look like to live with the Lord? Living without the Lord looks like seizing control. Living with the Lord looks like surrendering control. Living without the Lord looks like seizing control. Living with the Lord looks like surrendering control. It means shifting our perspective from the human and horizontal that life is about me and for me and up to me. And instead, Instead, acknowledging that life is given by and ruled by the sovereign Lord and creator of all things who, by the way, loves you immeasurably and eternally. 
It means living in loving and trusting relationship with him and surrendering control of your life to him, which, by the way, he has always had and you have never had. One writer said this, you are afraid to surrender because you don't want to lose control. But you never had control. All you had was anxiety. You're afraid to surrender because you don't want to lose what you've never had. It is logical. It is logical to surrender control to the Lord because he already has it. He is the creator and sustainer of everything. He is all-powerful and all-present and all-knowing and all-wise. But it's not logic that ultimately persuades us to surrender to the Lord. It's love. The Lord so loved us that when we were powerless under the tyranny of Satan and the guilt and the shame of our sin, when we had no control over our eternal destiny and the wages of death that we had earned, he came for us and gave himself for us. His righteousness in exchange for our sin. His eternal crown in exchange for the cross that we deserve. He stood condemned in our place so that we could have reconciliation and peace with God, so that we could have forgiveness and adoption into God's eternal family, so that we could live with the Lord in this life and for eternity, so that we could have meaning and peace and rest and joy. All of these things Jesus Christ secured by his resurrection from the dead. There is one person with the power to permanently rise from the dead and cause us to do so also. And he did. He had to rise from the dead because he's loved us so much that he died for us. What excuse is there for those who have been so loved not to surrender everything that we are and everything that we do to him? And when we do, It changes everything. When we surrender control to the Lord, we are set free. When we surrender control to the Lord, we are set free. We are set free to do our absolute best for him and then entrust the outcome to him. When we live with the Lord and surrender to the Lord, it changes our work. What I do is no longer for me and about me and up to me. My work is for the Lord. He made me and he gave me the ability to do this work. He sustains me in this work. And this is true for not just preachers, but every human being alive. If this house actually gets built, it will be because the Lord built it through my work. And therefore, my labor is not in vain. Instead, it has the deepest possible meaning. It is about and for the honor and glory of the eternal God on display in my work. And if that is to be seen by others, that is up to him. The Lord is in control of the outcome. He's in control of what happens next when I have given my best for him. Tim Keller says, if the purpose of work is to serve and exalt something beyond ourselves, 
then we actually have a better reason to employ our talent, ambition, and entrepreneurial vigor. We are more likely to be successful in the long run, even by the world's definition. The way that the Apostle Paul says it is, work whatever you do, work heartily as if for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving in your work. When we live with the Lord and surrender to the Lord, it changes our work and it changes the way that we view our world. Surrendering control means letting go of the illusion of safety and security and comfort that I can manufacture for myself and instead rest in the provision and protection of the Lord. It doesn't make the world less dangerous. It makes me more free from fear. It means that we do our best to stay awake and to guard the city, to know uh, the dangers and to proceed with wisdom, to, to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. It means that we can meaningfully engage in things like politics and culture from a biblical perspective, but not to give them the throne of our hearts, not to make them our core identity, not to seek control by them and therefore not panic when it seems like we are losing. Surrendering control in our world means we are free from having to manage our future, manage our environments, and manage our relationships instead. We don't have to control them. We can tend to them because we do not have to be afraid. The Lord our God is in control. And the words of Jesus are not two sparrows sold for a penny. And not one of them will fall to, gr to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are worth, you are of more value than many sparrows. David in Psalm 4 says it this way. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you, O Lord, alone make me lie down in safety. Solomon teaches us that living with the Lord and surrendering control to the Lord also changes our relationship with worry. I just want to read a couple of passages, one from Jesus and one from the Apostle Paul, that shows us what, what happens to our worry when we live with the Lord and surrender to the Lord. This is Matthew 6, 25 through 34. The Lord Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They, never, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, Do not be anxious about anything, 
but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Solomon, here in Psalm 127, what he gives to his beloved Leah. Living without the Lord means seizing control, and you also seize with it a life of vanity and anxiety. Living with the Lord means surrendering control to the Lord and receiving a life of meaning and peace and rest and joy. Which do you want? The Lord extends the invitation in the words of Jesus. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. He gives to his beloved In the latter part of this psalm, Solomon gives just one example of God's goodness to humanity to uh, offer as an encouragement to live with him and in surrender to him. It's the example of children. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. I want us to see that this is not a reward in the way that we typically think about rewards, that that we do something good and then someone gives us a reward for it. No, this is a a reward of unmerited favor. This is pure grace of God. The Lord in his wisdom and sovereignty creates life through a process that he designed. We do not deserve the gift and heritage of children. We do not deserve the gift and heritage of children that God gives to us. The the way that we know that is is simply this. The the best human being who ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ, had no biological children. So we could never think that we deserve this gift. I know many wonderful singles. And I also know many extraordinary couples who struggle with infertility. We also see that in this broken and fallen world, the process by which children are created is often abused, and the children themselves are at times unwanted or mistreated. And this grieves us, and it makes us angry, and rightfully so, righteously so. The truth is we don't have access to answers about why. Those who desire children don't have them, and some who despise them do. Even that is an opportunity for us to surrender control to God and to trust him, seeing that children are a heritage from him. An unmerited gift of his grace is the family. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is a word, yes, to the household and to the family, but this is also a word to the people of God. Those who have children, whether by uh, through biology or through adoption or through as spiritual parents, the covenant community of God's people, Those who have children in in one of these ways are blessed because our children are a sign to us that Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This part of the psalm shows us that as we worry and fret and try to seize control of our work and our world with our worry, the Lord is at work. 
And he is at work in the mundane. And he is at work in the natural. And he is at work in the ordinary to defeat all his and our enemies, to bless his people and ultimately to make all things new. We can trust him and surrender control because unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord watches over the city, unless the Lord provides for our needs, unless the Lord establishes our households, unless the Lord empowers his church, Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' invitation is to surrender control. Surrender it all and receive peace, joy, security of life with the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for King Solomon and these wise words that he has written to remind us that unless you are in anything, it doesn't matter. Lord, we long to surrender ourselves to you, but Lord, we are so prone not to. I pray that you would help us just in little ways, even today, to surrender ourselves to you, to surrender control of our lives, to to begin to see our lives as as about you and for you and up to you, Lord. And let us be freed by that, to do our best for you and to trust you with the results. And I pray that you would help us do that as individuals, as families, and, and Lord, as a church, as we seek to faithfully fulfill our mission of connecting people with the hope of the gospel. Lord, you have already given us the, the command to go and make disciples. You have already promised us your presence with us at all times and your power at our disposal as the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. So Lord, make us bold to do our best in the proclamation of the gospel and to trust you with the outcome. Lord, we thank you for children and the gifts that they are and we thank you for the children who have been present here tonight for VBS. Lord, unless you build this house, we will labor in vain. Lord, we surrender control and we look to you our Lord and our God, to do work in the hearts and lives of children that we are powerless to do. Lord, use our church, even this week, to bring children from darkness to light, from death to life, in the name of Jesus. And it's in that name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and lift up our hearts and our voices to the Lord once more in song.